Hello, Tennis Addict Podcast fans, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is my co-host, Mike. Yeah, it seems to be that um, it's it's been you and I a lot lately. I know. The, where's the, the Mike and Mike show? Where, 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 where's uh, the, the Mike and Mike show? Has primarily been nonstop. Where's uh, the slacker? So, yeah. Where's he at? Yeah. Uh, you know, I talked to him. He uh, he he didn't give me one way or the other whether it was work related that he uh, wasn't here or not. But uh, I'm assuming that it is. I do have some comments from him that I can uh, you know, throw in his two cents. That no one wants to hear. I'm kidding. Um, but yeah. Uh, so uh, Mike and Mike show again this week. And um, we'll, uh, we'll keep it rolling. Um, hey, the U.S. Open's over. Right. So it's our U.S. Open recap and review. Uh, it's what we always do, of course, uh, at the end of each uh, Grand Slam, Reach Slam. We, we recap and review uh, the back end of... Uh, the tournament because you know we always do that mid-tournament review um so we'll kind of look at the last couple of rounds uh talk briefly about anything that we really want to touch on there we got a little bit of news not much because there really hasn't been a whole lot in the last couple of days and that generally seems to be the case after a slam i mean unless some momentous uh thing happens out there in the world of tennis um Usually you have a good three, four, five days uh, where there really isn't a whole lot going on in the tennis world. People are just – it's kind of like right after Christmas or New Year's where everyone's just exhausted. You know, the players are exhausted. The media is like exhausted because they've been, you know, typing up articles left and right for, for two weeks. And the fans are sated. Like they're like, okay, I've seen a lot of tennis in the last two weeks. I'm actually going to maybe go watch a movie or something. So uh, it's kind of uh, a bit barren, I guess. So let's uh, let's get to our little bit of news. So the first thing is uh, Kimiko Date retires from tennis at the age of 46. She originally retired in 1996 and came back in 2008. So... You know, when she retired from tennis originally, she was 26 years old, really in her prime as a tennis player. You know, when she came back, she was, you know, 38 years old. So, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, she did win a couple of titles, I believe, after the comeback. Am I am I mistaken? She on that? did when she first came back. Yeah, people were commenting on how impressive she was. Uh, you know, for someone who was 38 years old, she certainly didn't move like a 38 year old. Um, no. but you know, at 46 years old, her body just is, is unable to cope with the demand. She's had some knee issues. She had uh, surgery. Um, I believe last year she had surgery. Uh, so it's just, it's something that, you know, at 46, I don't care whether you're a man or a woman, you're out there on the, on the tour, your body's going to break down a lot easier. So, um, but it's, it's. I guess this, I wouldn't say it's sad to see her go so much. I mean, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I just I see it as, hey, it was a great story when you came back. Uh, you realized you missed tennis and you came back. I would say it is more of an inevitability at that point. I mean, yeah. we, we're seeing players play well into the 30s, but now we're talking playing well into their 40s, almost to 50s. Yeah, who does she think? Jimmy, who does she think she is? Jimmy Connors? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> We can all hope and dream. Uh, well, yeah. With a <laughs> career like that, yeah. 
we could hope and dream. Uh, Fabio Fanini apologizes for uh, comments made during his U.S. Open singles loss. Um, I think we talked about this quite a bit. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Uh, personally, I feel like, okay, maybe he is finally looking at what he said and the backlash, and he's actually trying to mitigate the fallout. Uh, he could actually mean what he says when he apologizes, or maybe it's just about trying to, like I said, mitigate the fallout from all of this. Because as we said last episode, the things that could happen due to his comments to his career are catastrophic. I mean, we're talking at massive fine possibilities or maybe even Grand Slam bans. So that's not something that he wants to play with. You can bet he's doing everything he can to you know, kind of stem the, the blood flow from all this. So there's that. Yeah, um, Rafael Nadal and uh, Garbine Muguruza are both number one in the world. They are the first country since the USA to ha- uh, have both the ATP and WTA world number one players simultaneously. And the last time that happened, the USA held that, and it was 14 years ago. So quite some time ago. Yeah, uh, a big milestone, honestly. Um, it's a big milestone. Uh, we know that Muguruza looked up to Nadal a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Spaniard, and um, I think it's it's amazing for her that she could be at the top of the women's game at the same time that, I don't want to say an idol, but someone that she looked up to in the doll uh, could be in the same position. So I'm probably you know, thinking that that's got to be a, a monumental thing for her. Um, and for Nadal, I mean, he's, he's carried the Spanish flag for a very long time. Um, so to him, congrats that he's back to number one. Um, but of course, to him, I don't necessarily see this as a, uh, in his eyes, a huge victory. I think right now, um, for him, it's just be healthy and continue to play well at the slams. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure he's happy to be number one. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that's certainly any player that that says I don't care about being number one. I don't think they actually mean it. Uh, they may not think it's the most important thing in the world. If they get to number one due to just consistent success, that's fine. Um, but for a player who's in their late 20s or in their 30s, it becomes less important to be number one than to just play well. It, you know. So, okay. Uh, let's move on to our feedback. We actually have uh, three emails. This, uh, Yay! Yeah, feedback. Yeah, feedback. We love feedback. So, uh, before I get into it, if you want to send in feedback, you can do so by writing in to us at tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. All lowercase, uh, all one long word. Um, just write in the subject line what you're writing in about, and uh, we will read your feedback here on the podcast, and we'll reply. And that's what we're going to do now. So uh, we have, yeah, like I said, three emails. Just bring them up here. All right, so here is uh, email number one is uh, from Julie. She lives in France. Uh, she says, "Hi guys, uh, been listening to the, been listening for a couple of months now. Love what you guys are doing." Um, she said, "A couple of years ago, it seemed as though France is ready to make a push on the ATP with some of the young stars like Luca Puy uh, making some noise, but so far they haven't done much. Is there any hope in the near future?" For France, 
So, Michael, what are your thoughts on this email? I mean, for the most part, uh, Puy is kind of the young guy right now um, leading leading French tennis. Um, obviously, we saw Songa play well at the beginning of the year. Uh, but again, Songa's in the back half of his career at this point. Um, you and I and Eric have relentlessly talked about Gilmore Fils and his potential. Uh, he is starting to near the back half of his career, although I believe he's a few years younger than Songa is. Um We've seen players like Jill Simone, who were, who was, um, you know, at the top of his game for many, many years. Um, he struggled with injuries over the last few years and has kind of dropped off a bit. Um, and we've seen Richard Gasquet. We know the talent level that he has uh, and the ability that he has. He has been plagued with injuries as well. Um, to be honest, for the crop uh, of Frenchmen, I think the problem is on the men's side that um, too much injuries – that um, they have been plagued with injuries on and off for the last few seasons, uh, which has really, really affected their ability um, to be effective at the slams, to really make any runs. Uh, I myself am very high on Luca Puy, who I think is going to be the the French hope going forward. Um, with with most of the other guys starting to get to the point now where they're at the back half of their career, but. Uh, I, I'm high on Luca Pui, and I think that he has the opportunity um, to make a splash here and there. I still don't think that he's necessarily at the level, and unless something changes, I don't think that he's at the level where he's going to be a real threat to win majors yet. Um, he does have he does have the type of game that he could maybe build upon a little bit. Uh, I think the mental part of the game, which is the case for most players. Uh, is still a little suspect for him. He has a tendency where he can kind of go away at times uh, mentally and just not stay within the moment. I think if uh, we can get him to the point where he is able to stay in those moments, then I think that he has a chance to contribute um, going forward uh, at slams. But to be honest, as far as, as younger French players... Um, I mean, we've heard a lot about the American, the young, um, young American players coming up, and lots of news about that. But to be honest, uh, and it could just be that there's just not a lot of talk out in the public about it. I haven't heard a whole lot about young um, French players uh, on the men's side. Mike, have you yourself heard anything? Uh, you know, I think there was a player. I want to say at the at the French Open this year, I think he got ousted in the first round. I cannot for the life of me remember who he is now, and it just he just popped in my head. Uh, but he was he was kind of touted. I want to say he won maybe the the French Open Junior French Open Championship or something, and right, and right. he ended up getting knocked out like in the first round. But um, I, I think there's at least one pretty talented player coming up through. But I haven't really heard much beyond that, and I do apologize, listeners. I don't, I cannot think of his name right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's at least one guy. But but other than that, yeah, I can't think of much. Okay. Okay. But I mean, is there potential? Yeah. Yes. Sure. Pui Pui will obviously be the one that's really going to to carry them forward. Um, I mean, we've seen a little bit of uh, resurgence from uh, Manorino. Within the last couple months, he's, we've seen some good play out of him. But for the most part, I mean, he's still near the back half of his career as well. Um, 
So for the, for the most part, it, it's kind of resting on Luca Puyawite right now um, going forward. But I do think that he has the ability to carry um, carry the French flag forward and give an opportunity. We've seen him make a couple decent runs at slams. And mind you, he is young. He is a young player yet. So um, if he can just you know get a little bit better on the mental part of the game, I do think um, that, that he has the opportunity to be a factor in slams. Okay. Yeah, I agree pretty much with all your comments. I don't really think I have much to add here. So uh, thank you, Julie, for sending in that feedback. Uh, really great question there, and understandably, Mike, was she bringing was she bringing up the women's side at all? She did. I know that she kind of pointed out a little bit. I, I, no, um, I think and I kind of alluded to that a little bit. The but, men's um, side, I think. I don't know that. Yeah. She was necessarily holding a like, not talking about the women's side, but I think she definitely because she brought up like Luca Pui, so I just assumed she was kind of talking about the ATP side. But, um, well, real quickly on the WTA side, since I'm usually the contributor to that, uh, obviously Christina Mladenovic is is the the flag bearer right now for France. We've seen her make several runs at slams. We know that she can be a factor at, at, at Grand Slam tournaments. The biggest thing for her right now is to just stay healthy. If she can stay healthy, she can be a factor at slams and at the Master Series events and definitely put herself in a place to be talked about uh, on a very consistent basis. But she, I think, has quite a few good years ahead of her yet uh, where she could be at the top of, uh, of her game and be able to uh, to make a splash. So definitely, uh, as far as the women's side, Christina Mladenovic, of course, being the flag bearer for France. Yep. And every time I pick her for going deep into, I know a, every yeah, time we pick like, her to go deep into a draw, like it just kind of doesn't happen. It's like kryptonite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, again, thank you, Julie, for sending that in. Uh, obviously, I understand, given that you're uh, from France, you have a, an interest in in French players and French tennis. So. Uh, that's a great question. So thank you. All right. Next email is uh, Jack. He lives in Georgia, United States. He says, uh, hi, I'm a big Nadal fan, but even I have to admit that the U S open was far easier than it normally would have been. Do you feel this should be held against him? Uh, does this diminish or tar his latest championship? Um, okay. So uh, I'm going to start out on this one. So, you know, it it doesn't. It uh, you should, well, I can't be held against him, and I don't really think it diminishes really or tars it, because you have no control as a player who's in the tournament or not. You know, uh, if we look at the championship, there were a lot of guys that pulled out, with the exception of Andy Murray. A lot of these guys were out well before the draw. You know, and it's it's unfortunate that players like Djokovic and obviously Murray, uh, Nishikori, uh, uh, Stan Wawrinka, he's he's out for the season as well. Um, the players like that are, are all all out before the tournament even started. Uh, but just because they're out, it doesn't mean that you still didn't have to fight hard every match and win. Um, because sometimes when the competition is a bit lighter and you have a lot of people pull out, there are players who actually will play a lot worse. They play down to their competition. You know, you suddenly your draw seems a lot easier, so you don't go out and try quite as hard because you think 
oh, I'll have an easier time. It's not going to be quite so hard. I don't have to face X person and X this other person in the quarters and this person in the semis. So I can just kind of coast to the final. Uh, you know, players that do that, and there probably are some out there that are like that, um, they don't tend to win these titles. <laughs> um, so uh, to me, I think, you know, this doesn't diminish his win. Uh, is it was it easier? Yeah, no doubt about it. It was definitely an easier draw, uh, but you can't hold it against him. And I don't think it diminishes or Taurus his latest championship, just because the competition was uh, a little easier than it normally would have been. Because as they say, you have no control over who you're facing next. And if you look at his draw, he actually had opponents that would have been more difficult had they not uh, been defeated before he got to him. Uh, one of them was David Goffin. You know, if Goffin hadn't been ousted, uh, and granted, I understand he had a, a leg issue, but let's say the leg issue didn't flare up and he managed to make through make it through his opponent, right? Uh, Nadal suddenly has to face him, and, and then his route becomes uh, quite a bit harder because we all know that Goffin is a really good all-court player on pretty much any surface. So... Partially, yes, the, the field was not quite as, as difficult, but at the same time, uh, Nadal could have had a harder uh, a draw if some of the players he should have faced hadn't been defeated earlier. So, uh, But it doesn't diminish it, I don't think so. Mike, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, let's be honest. If you're winning a slam, you're winning a slam. You can't, you can't sit back and say that it diminishes it. Um, you know, on my side, I looked at it as obviously I was hoping that him and Roger would get to the semis together. That did not happen. Um, but the fact is, I looked at it because um, I myself, regardless of who it is, I want so, I want to see somebody that that had to give for you know put forth a ton of effort uh, to come through. And you know, if you could see a guy that can win two five setters and and go into the uh, the final and, and scratch and claw their way to a title, I think that would be amazing. But sadly, we don't get that very often uh, where we get to see players do that. You can't take away from the fact that he still won the tournament. You can't say it was diminished because, let's be honest, if you're going to get that intricate into that, um, then you can say that there was a ton of tournaments that people have won over the years that, um, oh, well, they didn't play anybody. Okay, but... You know, maybe that was the best there was at that time, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, if we go even way into the, you know, the annals of time with tennis, but um, was his draw easier? Absolutely. Um, it definitely was. Uh, had his draw not been quite as easy, the Del Potro match could have been a little different, maybe. Uh, but the fact was, I, I don't think that, I ultimately don't know if Del Potro could have gotten through him anyway. But, uh, but there was definitely more of a chance had that been the case. Uh, Nadal did luck out. Doug Apollo played like a dog, honestly. He played horrible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was it was terrible. It was one of the worst matches I've seen Doug Apollo play against him. Uh, and Andre Rublev, although he is a young upstart, let, let's be honest, he, he lucked his way to the quarterfinals. I mean, he won some very good matches to get there, but... He was way overmatched in that quarterfinal. And we know that Nadal in the back half of the tournament is when he usually starts to hit stride. And he showed it in that match. He gave Rublev absolutely nothing in that matchup. Um, so can, can I say that he should be diminished? 
you know, the wind diminished. No, you can't. You can't do that. You you can't hold it against him or anybody else that's won a slam, and they've lucked out and had an easy draw. It just that's the way it is. That's why it's a draw. Um, <laughs> Mike, you and I have had many discussions about draws over the years. Yeah. Um, but but the fact is, the fact of the matter is, if you win, you win. It doesn't really matter how it happened. Um, I mean, in, in this instance, you know, the field was a little bit lesser, but he had some guys earlier in the tournament that played him tougher than they probably would have normally. True. And he struggled a little bit out of the gate, but, I mean, we know that Nadal's not necessarily a fast starter in tournaments, especially at slams, um, with the exception of the French, of course, um, where he barely ever drops a set ever. <laughs> but the fact is, uh, on the other surfaces, it, it it takes him a lot of time to build his confidence on that surface, and guys can eke out sets against him. Um, and, I mean, we'll talk more later on about, you know, the, the back half of the tournament and how that went. But, no, ultimately, you can't hold it against him. Was the draw easier? Yes. But you can't hold it against him. Okay. All right. Uh, third and final email is uh, from Devin in California, uh, United States. He says, hey, guys, uh, I love Federer and Nadal cleaning up this year. But don't these results make it feel like the next generation has just missed a huge opportunity this year? Uh, Grigor Dimitrov failed to do anything, and Alexander Zverev uh, made far less noise than I thought he would have. Is there a dark underbelly to this whole dominant run by the quote-unquote elder statesman of the game this year? So... Yeah, I, I'll t- I'll take that, Mike, okay. uh, first, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, for me, definitely, there, there's an underbelly, but I wouldn't look that far into it. I was actually just talking to my wife over the weekend about it, and I said to her, you know, okay, Nadal and Federer both won two slams this year. Um, and they were putting up on the uh, on the coverage that, uh, of the tournament uh, championship that, you know, Nadal has 16 titles now, Roger at 19. Um and, and then Novak would be the closest currently um, at 12. And I said to her, I said, you think about it this way, though. I said, if you have Murray and Djokovic both come back healthy next year, Djokovic is still not out of reach of the both of them. If he plays well into his 30s as they are going to and he gets back to that level he was at, he could still catch them both. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about that recently, Mike, but uh, – I mean, I logically was just thinking about it. He could still catch them. Definitely could still catch them if he can get back to where he was. Because we know at this point, with Roger and Nadal being a little bit older now, that Djokovic, obviously still a few years younger, but the fact is when he was at the top of his level, were they at their best then? Maybe not. But I still think that Djokovic is his absolute best right now could probably beat them. Probably. Would it be tough? Yes. But I think he could still do it. Mm-hmm. Murray, on the other hand, absolutely. We know what Murray's capable of when he's healthy. So in my mind, I sit back and say, is it a problem? Yes. But those two are going to come back next year, and it's probably going to be uh, the four of them just you know going back and forth all year long. For the next generation, uh, the question is, did they miss an opportunity? Absolutely. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. You and I had Zverev going really deep, and I think Eric did too in this tournament. Yeah. Uh, he was, 
I think this is the first time we could say going into this tournament that he was not a dark horse any longer. That he was an actual discussion piece to win this tournament. Um, you and I were there in New York that night that he went down. Uh, or no, or we saw, sorry, not the night that he went down, we weren't there. We, we saw the beginning of his match and he looked a little shaky out of the gate, to be honest, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the tournament. Didn't come out there and just, you know, blow guys away. And when he got to Borna Korich, Korich has shown that he is a tough customer against anybody. And he just outsteadied Zverev. It wasn't the fact that Zverev played bad. I don't think he did. He just didn't go, uh, he didn't bring that A-plus game uh, that he needed to at certain points of that match. And it just slipped away from him. Um, but yes, the next generation missed a big opportunity. We obviously saw some guys. We saw Rublev make the quarterfinals. Um, we, we see the new generation making strides. They're here. The problem is now that they're here, they're in the house, they're talking, they're in the conversation. It's now a different story to actually take the title. You know, before they weren't even a discussion piece. These, these new, these young guys, okay, they're in the tournament, sure. But there was never any talk of them being a legitimate contender at all. Zverev has finally brought forth that. Korich beating Zverev even brings that even further. And somebody like Rublev, who, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, is only 19. Nin- I think he's just turning 20 soon. Yeah, he's turning 20 really um, soon. He's still really young. Yes, he uh, he puts himself in the conversation getting to the quarterfinals here. As far as Grigor Dimitrov, I'm not going to go too far about that because I will get to that later on in the podcast. Okay. Uh, but yes, there was lots of missed opportunity from the the generation that's behind. Uh, I'm even going to say behind Djokovic and Murray. I'm not even going to say behind Roger and, and uh, Rafa right now. I'm going to say the generation behind Djokovic and Murray missed out big time here at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. It's It's just... The dark underbelly, I think what he basically is trying to get at here is, um, you know, Nadal and Federer winning four slams, all the slams, you know, what, what's the downside of that? What's the, is, what's the, does that say about the state of the men's tour that even in a, uh, time when the, when the, some of the best players in the men's game are down with injury uh, when the field is a lot less um, filled with like the, the, the top sharks like Joe Quick and Loaded Stan, draw. Yeah. you know, and all that, that they can't, they still can't capitalize. They still can't actually take like of all the slams, the U S open should be the one, like they should have been like Zverev, out of everybody. I mean, he should have been taking his opportunity. He doesn't have to go through. So all these other players like, like Djokovic and possibly Murray and Stan, like he can actually get to the final and the bottom half of the draw was so much weaker. Like the fact that he even lost down there is just a real shame. So yes, I agree. I I agree. I think that, um, yeah, it, they should have cleaned up, or they should be cleaning up more than they are, and they're simply they're simply not. Um, and I think they may come to regret that before too long. So, all right, Devin, uh, thanks for that email. Uh, thanks, Jack, for your email, and again, Julie, thank you for your email as well. Um, really great stuff. Yes, fans, thank you very yeah. much. That was awesome. Yeah, that was that great. Was great. Uh, we love getting the feedback in. So please, uh, you know, if you feel like I don't know, a little self conscious, because I've been that way in the past. 
you know, a long time ago when I was first starting to listen to podcasts and I might feel a little self-conscious about sending in some feedback, questions or opinions or whatever. Um, but if you're feeling a little self-conscious, don't, don't feel that way. Trust me. We're, we're pretty open to everything. Uh, so regardless of what your question or comment is about, don't, don't, we'll talk yeah, about don't it. be afraid to like send something in. Let us know what you think uh, because we like to create a dialogue between us and you. Uh, that's part of the fun. So, uh, yep. Feel free to send in some feedback if you want to. But if you don't want to, that's fine because guess what? You can still listen to the podcast, listen to us, and hopefully still have a good time. All right. So uh, let's move on. We're going to get into uh, recapping what happened at the U.S. Open. So, Fans, we've been promising it. It's doubles time. Yes, it is. All right. So Martina Hingis and uh, Young Wan Chan win the Women's U.S. Open doubles title. Uh, they defeated uh, Lucy Hodeka and Katarina Sanayakova 6-3-6-2. Uh, Michael, I watched this match from start to finish. I did too. Did, How about that? It didn't, <laughs> yeah. And it didn't last that long, obviously, as you can see by the score. Uh, you know, Shannon Hingas dominated yeah. that match. Yeah. Um, G- uh, Hodeka and Sanayakova really struggled to hold serve in this match. Um, they were pretty much under pressure all the time. Hingis, um, you know, Hingis has been around a while. She has found, I think, a very uh, combati- uh, com- compatible player uh, in Chan to team up with as Chan has a little bit more power but yet still has that same game. But the biggest thing with the two, they move so well together as a doubles team uh, in covering covering spots and making sure that they were not out of place at any one time. Uh, I can't honestly in my mind remember a, a point in that match where they were horribly out of position at any point in time. Um, complete dominance by the two and perfect doubles play. Yeah, they're, they're great. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Martina here in a few minutes. Um, yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. But uh, a great win by them. It was just a pure dominant match on their end. They did a great job. Uh, they really complement one another. It's just a great uh, team, and I can't wait in to see what else they do because I feel like uh, we could be seeing, you know, this this team ascend to the number one position uh, pretty pretty quickly here. Um, all right, so Martina Hingis and Jamie Murray win the U.S. Open mixed doubles title. They defeated uh, Hao Ching Chan and Michael Venus. Michael Venus six one. 4-6-10-8, a really, really close match, as you could tell by the, the score. Uh, this really came down to the wire. It was some really, really tough uh, the, last, the last bit there. Um, they really fought hard to get this victory, but you know we've seen Jamie and Martina win already together at Wimbledon. Uh, they seem to really complement one another, just like like Martina does with uh, Chang, or I'm oh, sorry, not Chang, Chan. I'm sorry. Um, they really complement one another, um, and so I feel like that's partially why you're seeing these results. Martina herself is simply uh, brilliant, but uh, but obviously we know Jamie is an excellent doubles player. He's also won Grand Slam titles. Um, so yeah, it's really really great. But what are your thoughts on this match? I watched this. This thing was a bit of a nail biter. The first set was obviously pure domination by by Jamie Martinez. They really came out of the gates quick. Uh, they just kind of almost shocked. I feel like it really shocked 
uh, Chan and Venus because they didn't see it. I feel like they didn't even see it coming. They just they had a bit of a shell shocked look at the end of that set. Like, what happened? Has the match started yet? Uh, they just like looking around, like, wow, it's already over. Uh, the first set, yeah. and and then the, the second set, they recovered. Um, it was a bit of a nip and tuck uh, set there, but they managed to pull that out. And then the ten and eight, that was just a back and forth, bit of a slugfest there. Uh, did you watch this match or? I I admittedly did not okay. get to. I saw just a couple of quick highlights from it, but again, for Hingas finding someone like Jamie Murray to team with, which I believe they've teamed for several mixed doubles titles at this point now. Yeah, yep, um, they're great. But again, uh, uh, another player that Hingez is able to team with that they're very they work in unison. Um, and again, that's that's the biggest thing with any doubles team. You have to work in unison. Um, that is honestly, that's probably the biggest thing in doubles. You have to be in unison with your partner. If you're not moving together and you're not covering the court together, um, if you're playing a team that's that's good, you're gonna lose very quickly. As you said, that first set went by really fast. Um, but after that, obviously, uh, Chan and Venus tightened things up a little bit. And then, of course, the super tie break 10-8, obviously being super close there at the end. Um, but again, uh, not surprising to me that Hingas and Murray won. Um, but not a whole lot that I can add, being that I did not see the whole match. Yeah, it was just more brilliance from both uh, Martina. There was a really great point there in the match. Uh they lost the point, but it, Jamie and Bartina lost the point. But it was uh, it was just a brilliant, some brilliant gets by both teams. Uh, but that was it wasn't the only point. That there were there were others too, but uh, there was one in particular that is, that is really fantastic. And uh, if you look at the highlights, you'll you'll see it. it it's pretty great. Okay, so uh, Bartina uh, now holds twenty five slams. If you combine the singles titles, the doubles, and mixed doubles titles. Uh, since her maiden slam in 1997. Obviously, Michael, 25 is a huge number. Um, she's young. She's 35. She'll be 36 here, I think, before too long. I think uh, in the next month or so, or if less than that, I think. She'll be 36. So, um, you know, 36 is, is definitely getting up there, I think, if you're a singles uh, player. But if you're a doubles player, you're kind of in the middle of your your peak, your best years in a lot of ways, right? I agree. Um, and, and for the most part, in, in my mind, although she's 36, um, being playing in doubles, uh, we've seen many people play well into their 40s uh, in doubles just because it's not quite physically as taxing. Um, although the although if you your skills have diminished, then obviously it, it presents a different thing. But um, I think twenty five is a huge number. It's a very exclusive class to be in. Uh, for Martina, um, you know, I'm in the same position that you are. That we we've you know we saw her play when we were we were much younger. We saw her, um, and for the most part, she's always had the skills. Uh, I'm excited that she's been able to. Uh, transition and stay in the game for as long as she has being that the power game pushed her out of the singles uh, many years ago uh, but she was able to get into the route uh, here with uh, with the doubles and you know continue success um, for me I can't wait um, in my eyes for uh, Bethany Maddox Sands to get healthy uh, and for her and Lucy Safarova to go head to head with uh, with Hingas and Chan, I think uh, that could be an amazing thing for the women's doubles game. 
Um, and we, we could see some real amazing battles on the court between the two, between the four of them. And I think that, uh, you know, could propel the sport, the double sport a little bit further. Uh, maybe something along the lines of how the Bryans were for a long time and, and still are to some extent, but, um, we're able to push the doubles game, uh, in, in a, you know, a rocketing direction. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely say that for the women's game and continued success. And I think Martina can win many more yet. Yeah. I think one of the best things she does is she picks partners who are able to mask over whatever weaknesses she has. So, Absolutely. you know, Chan, Chan has things about her game, which she does maybe a bit better than Martina does. And the same goes for Jamie Murray. So, like you said, it's about partnering up with people who are able to work well with you on the court, but also you have to have slightly different weapons so that it's just not two players that are exactly the same, you know, because that's not what you want out there. You want synergy. And I think that goes with the weapons that uh, both players have at their disposal. So I think with Hingis, she's been great since she came back about finding partners that really work well with her, uh, both on the court moving around and points and just with the weapons that they possess. Absolutely. All right. So let's move along here. Michael, why don't you take this? It's the men's. Uh, I, I'm going to butcher the name. So why don't you why don't you do this one? <laughs> Jean-Julien Roger and Horia Tikal uh, wins the U.S. Open men's doubles final, beating Feliciano and Mark Lopez, uh, 6-4-6-3. Credit to Roger and Tikal. They have been teaming for a little while now, I do believe. Uh, and, and credit to both of them uh, on the success of, of getting through to win the title. Uh, I don't know for sure in my mind if they've won titles together before, but they may have. Uh, and I know Lopez and Lopez have teamed together many times as well. Um, and it was a good result for them, although they don't usually make too many huge runs at the Grand Slams. They're usually uh, high competition for most everybody, uh, and it's good to see them get to the final as well. Yeah, it is. It's a big result for them, obviously, the doubles players. And given the amount of great men's doubles teams out there that are playing at the moment, uh, a lot of talent, uh, to see them come through is really good. So congrats to them. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into the the meat of our podcast. Obviously, we've worked our way to the parts that everybody wants to hear. and That is the, the men's and women's singles titles. So uh, if we look at what happened in the women's side, Michael, um, obviously we know Sloan and Madison got to the final. Are there any matches you want to just mention briefly before we get into the women's? Any, anything that happened? Uh, I know the Venus-Sloan match was a huge back-and-forth weird match. You know, the way that uh, Venus got – well, really destroyed herself in that first set, and then she destroyed Sloane in the second set, and then it was just a a just a complete slugfest. Uh, both playing at the bet at their best in the third set, um, it was just a weird, crazy match. It was, um, but if we look at the draw, actually, um, and I and I watched most of the women's matches down the stretch. Um, the Venus Williams Petra Kvitova match in the quarterfinals, I actually picked Kvitova to get to the final and win. Um, Venus pulled it out in a very close uh, third set tiebreak uh, to, to beat Kvitova. Kvitova fa- fell apart just a little bit in that third set tiebreak. Otherwise, it was neck and neck the whole way. 
Um, actually, going into the tie break, I thought that, that it was Kvitova's uh, to win. Uh, but Venus picked up her level at the end and was able to pull it out. Stevens then um, in the semifinal with, with Venus, it was the exact opposite. Um, I actually thought Venus was kind of the favorite going into the late part, latter stages of that third set. Uh, and Stevens just picked up her level just a little bit right at the end, and that was enough to just sneak the, the match away. The other semifinal, um, very lackluster. Coco Vandaway never had a chance uh, once they stepped on the court. Madison was um, on fire. Madison absolutely blew her off the court. Um, I'm actually surprised that I didn't see uh, more negative emotion out of Vandaway than we did. Yeah. Because uh, she had no chance. Um, I think she was resigned to her fate not that long into the match. Kind of. I hate to say it, yeah, but I feel like I there agree. came a point where she realized that Madison was on fire. Uh, unfortunately, that's that's kind of what happened. Uh, she did beat uh, Pliskova uh, in the quarterfinals. Which yeah, Vandaway did upset Pliskova, yep. which was a huge win. And, but let's be honest, when we saw that match, it looked like that was what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vandaway came out on fire yep. and continued it through. And then when she got to Madison... I don't know, but but to be honest, Vandaway didn't play bad in the semifinal. She just didn't have a chance to do anything. Yeah, Keys was absolutely just hitting bombs from everywhere every time, uh, and Vandaway had no chance to even try to get her way into that match. Right, and Madison hurt her leg at the, the very tail end of that match, uh, which we're going to talk about. Which here. was weird. Yeah, which was weird. It was weird. Um, so Madison Keys and Sloane Stevens. I actually picked Madison to win this title against Sloane Stevens. I, 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 I I actually I picked Keys to beat Stevens when the final took place. Obviously, I didn't have them both in the final in my predictions, but when I saw the matchup, I'm like, well, this is Madison's all the way. Right. Um, just the way she was playing against Coco. I mean, I thought if she can bring that same kind of, just, yeah, she yeah. was so sharp and powerful, and she was. I mean, Coco was just watching winners fly by her all night long. But I think now, and, and I'm not trying to disqualify Sloane's win, but I think that that leg injury was more hampering than I think it appeared to be. I don't know if it, how painful it was, but I think at least to some degree it really – I think it had to have some kind of effect. Uh, I, I wouldn't say – it didn't appear as though it hurt her serve. It didn't appear as though it necessarily hurt her ground strokes at all. Um the only thing that I noticed um, in in the number one keys to this match, and that, that's weird to say, um, the biggest thing for this match is I'll rephrase um, Stevens' consistency and movement is what dictated that match. Yeah. Keys still hit her big shots. Uh, it's not that she didn't, but Stevens' mobility and her consistency, I think, caused Madison to go for even more. In that match, this is this is what I attested as to why I didn't think Keys was going to make it to the final. I really thought in that match with Fidelina in the fourth round that I believe it was fourth round that Keys was going to have the same thing happen to her in that match. Didn't happen. She stayed the course. She got through it in three sets and beat her. Here, um, I don't know. It was such a weird dynamic. They're best friends. It the whole thing was weird. The dynamic of it. As I'm watching the match, I, I'm just I'm not understanding what's going on. Uh, and, and like I said, when I after about I don't know, I think it was to be honest after the first set was over, the second set I I sat and analyzed more than I actually watched it. 
And to me, it looked like Steven's consistency off both sides and her ability to track down the shots that Madison was going after and landing in was causing Madison to go for more yep. and more and more. Exactly. And I, I, to be honest, after she lost the first set, Madison looked a little deflated after the first set. And I, I myself kind of felt like, if she doesn't get off to a good start in the second set, it's completely over, and it was. Um, it, it wasn't that Madison still wasn't there. It's just that her she was like she, she was, was playing like more. She was playing more or less without a purpose. To me, there was no game plan anymore. She was going out there and she was just swinging, and whatever happened happened. Yeah, I think she uh, she got like and, and it, yeah, she got like Coco that, that in the Coco Madison match. Uh, Coco was basically her in this match. Okay, that's that's a it's a good way to put it, but in a way, I don't even think that was the case because Madison took the ball out of Vandeweghe's hands. The ball necessarily wasn't out of Key's hands in this match. It's just that, and it could have been the leg. It could have been. We don't really know to what extent that had a factor, but if it did have a factor, it made sense as to why she hit uh more bailout shots is a good way to put it in that match there were instances where she was in a position they were in a rally kind of going back and forth and she would pull the trigger on a shot that really she probably shouldn't have pulled the trigger on and that just racked up the errors so fast and stevens was rock solid both sides of the both sides forehand backhand Correct me if I'm wrong. I think she only had like five errors in the whole match or something like six. that. It she was, had ten winners and six unforced errors. That's insane. Yep. Um, especially against a player that has the power that Madison does. You would have thought Sloan would have had to have gone for a little more. Didn't have to do that at all. And like I said, they, the the errors just piled up on Madison fast. And the most underrated shot in Sloan Stevens' game, her return of serve is very good. Yep. Not many people give her credit for that. Um, I think she did an amazing job of returning Madison's serve. Madison, I don't believe, really served that bad. Did she serve lights out? No. She could have served better, but it wasn't a bad serving night. She served 73% of her serves in, which is plenty enough with her serve to win most matches. Sloan did an amazing job of getting them back in and keeping the points neutral. And I think that if you look at it for Madison, the leg, the fact that Stevens was getting everything back, um, I, I think it, there was just too much piled up on her, and she just couldn't get through it all at once. Obviously, she had to be nervous. They both had to be nervous. First Grand Slam final for both of them. We can't discredit well, that. Um, well, I'll tell you what. You know, here, yeah, here's, some, I, I here's mean, something I, else I want to toss out, match st- statistics wise. Now we know that Madison is a big server. We know that she can really crack massive serves. She, like, like her forehand, she can really rip serves. But her average first serve speed was 100 miles an hour. And her average second serve speed was 79 miles an hour. Now, her fastest was 118, and her fastest second was 87. If you look at uh, Sloan, her average first serve speed was 96, and mm-hmm. uh, 74 was her second mm-hmm. average. Highest 87, and high, uh, biggest was 103. So, obviously, Sloan didn't go big almost at all. But at the same time, there – That'd be only four miles per hour difference between these two players, considering how big we know uh, Madison can serve. Um, I feel like I could tell that her serves didn't have the same amount of steam behind them. 
And no, no, yeah. that's what I'm saying. I mean, it would it was there. She was serving well, but it just it just wasn't quite the same dominating power. Yeah. It was still there, but just not in the same way, especially the same way that, that the Coco Vandaway match happened because but let's be honest, Sloan Stevens is an amazing returner compared to Coco Vandaway. Yeah. So that's my thing. Although everything was a little bit off for Madison, I feel like, in this match, just a little bit. Everything was just off a little bit. And I think the fact that Stevens came out, played a very confident play, the style of play, didn't go for too much, didn't stay too defensive. She just was kind of just in the right spot um, in that match and was just enough in every position. She played just well enough everywhere that it caused Keys to just be out of her game and overhit and overhit and overhit. And, and it just – the errors racked up so fast that, to be honest, I'm sure for Madison it felt like that match was over in five minutes. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, so, Michael, what does this mean for Sloan now and what does it mean for her in the future? What does this title mean for Sloan The biggest Stevens? thing right now for me, as long as Stevens needs to take this, but she has to stay um, – I don't want to say it. She has to stay within the moment. Um, we saw her play a few matches during this tournament where she probably shouldn't have won, but she clawed her way through them, got through them, got her way to the final, and played magnificent. Um, I, I think that for, for, for uh, Sloan, it's all about mentality. If you go out there, you have the positive attitude. I think the time away helped her. You and I talked about this before. Um, well, she was the her, she was the female guy could, in the for the longest time. This is true, but the fact is, I think the time away from the game was a big thing for her with the injury. Um, and and to be honest, I think her coaching uh, staff did a very good job of keeping her focused on the task at hand and keeping her within the lane of, of, of what needed to be done. Um, in my eyes, I think Sloan is the type of player that could carry this forward. Um, you know, we've seen lots of players, you know, win, win slams. We saw Ostapenko win at the French. We haven't really seen a lot of big impact from her since. Um, in my eyes, I saw that. I didn't necessarily think that Ostapenko was going to go whoosh and start, like, you know, taking everything. I didn't see that out of her. Not yet. Um, with no. Sloan Steven, well, I, I'm just saying when you win the slam, what do you do immediately after that is what I'm talking about. I do think that Sloan could carry this the rest of the season and could take this forward and be a factor at slams going forward. I really do think that she could um, because I think that she now realizes that if she really puts her mind to it, she can be in the conversation with the best in the world. Um, for Madison, um, this had to be gutting for her because let's be honest, no one picked Sloane Stevens to beat her. Yeah. I, I don't care who in this world said Sloane Stevens was going to go out and win this. Um, no, this was Madison's title. Um, I felt this way when she made that run in Australia a couple years back and then she had the ankle injury. It was the same thing. Um, so right now for Madison, uh, Take this as a positive that you made the final. If you truly weren't healthy, which we don't know, if you truly were not healthy, then you can't be mad about this. Yes, did you get beat horribly? Yeah, you did. And it looked bad. It really did. But um, I think she'll take positives that it was Sloane who was on the other side of the court. I think that, um, to be honest, I think this could be a much more negative had it not been Sloane on the other side of the court. Uh, I think that Madison 
because of the fact that their friends kept herself um, somewhat controlled, maybe didn't show as much emotion and get super upset about it um, throughout the match. Uh, you, you saw her stay fairly level, although you could tell that the emotions were getting to her in the later stages of the match. And after the match, obviously it did too. You could tell that it was, it was really hard for her, but I think, you know, had it not been Sloan on the other side, I think it would have been even worse. So if I'm Madison, you made it here, you know, you can do it. We already know that you have the ability to do it. So let's keep working forward. Let's get yourself to a final and let's hope that when you get to that final, you're healthy. Yeah. And then see what you can truly do when you're at, you're at full strength and you can go after the ball like we know you can, like the Coco Vandaway match. I mean, that's 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 the bottom line for me. Yeah, with me, my thoughts, Sloan, uh, it's nice to see her engaged. It's nice to see that she actually wants to be out there because for the longest time, it didn't feel like she wanted to be there. So I'm just happy that she it feels like she actually has ambition out in the court. It felt for the last few years like she could care less most of the time whether she was out there. And it feels like the time away has helped her out, so good for her. All right, so let's move into the men's uh, the men's part of this podcast. So, uh, of course, let's look at. Oh, Mike, uh, real real quick, yeah. uh, your brother's comments that oh, he did have, he did wrote in. Um, he did definitely say that for Sloan, he believes that this could be a huge step not only for her but for the American women, seeing that we had four American women in the Grand Slam semifinals. Something that hasn't been done for a very long time. Um, we obviously saw with those four women, obviously Venus is nearing the end of her career, but still playing at an amazingly high level. Um, we know that those other three women have the ability to compete for Grand Slams. Obviously Sloan's won. Madison made it to the final. We know Coco Vandaway has the ability. We saw it at Wimbledon. We saw it here. She can get there. Um, and I know that she is getting better. And, and, and that's what he's saying that basically he thinks that this is something huge that we could build off of. And let's be honest, they're all young with the exception of Venus. Um, we could see a small dynasty, he basically is saying, of American women here. That we could possibly have a few American women dominate the game again like we did many years ago. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I think this is good for, for women's tennis. I think it's good for American tennis. And I, th- I like that some of these young players like Sloan and Madison are they're, they're starting to bear fruit. Like their their game, everything is starting to finally. Um, you know, Madison lost, but you know, obviously she's been on the verge of breaking out for some time now. Had it not been for injuries and things like that, so good for good for her and good for Sloan. All right, so let's move on to the men's side here. So if we look at let, the Mike, you mean you mean let the celebration begin? Well, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I look. I, I'm happy, but I, I try to take a level-headed approach. I do. Um, uh, well, well, obviously we try to be rather, um, you know, level-headed when we do the podcast. But I'm sure that you and Eric are are very excited. Yeah, we're, that, yeah, uh, we're definitely the doll has picked up another happy. title. Uh, okay, so if we look at the quarterfinals here in the draw. Um, Nadal defeated Rublev. Um, Andre, you mean Nadal went out and broke a sweat? Uh, I think he broke just the barest Maybe a of sweats. Sweat. Um, <laughs> by far the easiest quarterfinal of the four. Correct. Um, 
Yes. But not his fault. Nope. Not his fault. That's the way it lays. That's you the know, way. He said that earlier. Could have faced Gofan, but unfortunately Gofan was injured. Could have faced Gofan. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Dapotra defeated Federer. Um, obviously, that was the big one of the big things that happened in this tournament. The the Dominic team Del Potro match. Prior to that, though, was obviously the the probably ma- match of the match tournament. Of the tournament. There's no doubt about that. Uh, for people that maybe if you haven't been following too much or you heard about it but don't know the details, Del Potro was suffering from the flu. Came out, lost the first two sets like lightning quick. Um, he looked horrible. He, he could barely move. He didn't look like he wanted to be out there, and I do believe in, in in press conferences he has said that he actually was going to retire after the second set was over. Yeah, he was on the verge. Um, and he saw that the crowd was behind him, and they were pushing for him to try to make an effort. Um, he also got some medicine from the doctors, which probably helped him a little bit too. Um, and he went out there, won the third. Boom, now we win the fourth. Momentum's running. I do believe he had gotten down a break in the fifth yep. and still managed away. To be honest, Del Potro fought hard in that match, but Dominic team should be absolutely gutted and feel horrible right now because there was no business for Del Potro to win that match. Isn't that the worst um, feeling in the world? I mean, seriously, if you're Dominic team, how do you stand? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to insult the guy, right? So for you, for fans out I'm there, I'm not either. But the but, fact is, you you have put yourself in a position. Well, you can't lose matches like that. It's you cannot lose matches like that. It's not you're ranked too high and you're playing too well for something like that to happen. It's not just it's not just the fact. That I he will was be up. harsh to Dominic Team. It's not about just the this. fact that it's, he was <laughs> up big. It, it was if I if I'm Team, I'm looking in the mirror and saying, "How did I lose to the guy that to a guy that has the flu and could barely stand on the court? They probably needed an IV after the match." Uh, an IV drip or several uh, or several. So, but let's but let's say one thing, Mike. And we haven't talked about this. We haven't had any of our big podcasts where, and this is something to come in the future where we talk about the shots of tennis. Juan Martín Del Potro has the biggest forehand in tennis. Oh, it's ridiculous. He has the biggest forehand in tennis. Yeah, that is the only reason that he got through Dominic Team's match. The only reason. Yeah. Because that is the only thing that kept him in that match. That is the only reason that he got through Roger. Uh, although, you know, you and I have both talked. We feel Roger definitely wasn't 100%. No, he wasn't. But the fact was he still wasn't playing horrible either. But Del Potro's forehand made the big effort there. And Del Potro's forehand, again, made the effort for him to take the first set off Nadal. Yep. The only reason is the forehand. Yep. The biggest shot in men's tennis right now. Correct. I totally agree. Okay. Yeah, Federer uh, losing to Del Potro. He obviously wasn't 100%. Uh, great to though. He gave it an effort. He tried hard. Obviously, he tried to win. Del Potro was just, uh, just too much, even if he was still suffering a bit from the flu still. Uh, then Sam Curry lost to Kevin Anderson. That was gutting. I, I, I think that was completely inexcusable. I'm sorry, Sam. With your game, with your serve, with your forehand, with your movement, uh, there should there's no reason why you should have been uh, on the losing end of that that match. Don't get me nope. wrong. We, t- we, we, we both took Query into the final, and there was no reason that he shouldn't have been there to play Nadal in the final mm-hmm. and a match that I actually think would have been very entertaining. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Um, and, and, and we'll get to it here in a little bit. Um, disappointment of the tournament right there. Yep, that, for that was disappointing. Sam Query should have been in the final. He blew a absolute golden opportunity. But credit to Kevin Anderson to get through that match and get to the final. 
I got to give him that, uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yep. Uh, Pablo Cuina Busta defeating um, Diego, Diego Schwartzman. That's right. Um, and I think that was just a, a sense that I think Schwartzman ran out of gas. Yeah. He had played some very physically tough matches, and he's a small guy, so he he really had to put forth a lot of effort. And let's be honest, the first two sets uh, were close, uh, although I don't think Busta was in any, any danger of really, really losing that match. Uh, but it, the, the fact that Schwartzman was out of gas, he was running on fumes, and actually put forth a pretty decent effort in that quarterfinal. And, and credit to him, though. Yep. Um, and then Kevin Anderson went out in the semifinals and did what he needed to do. Um, Busta had never been anywhere near that point in his career into a semifinal, although Anderson had neither. But Anderson's been around the block a while. Uh, I mean, he knows he he knows he understands the ins and outs of the game, and I think him, similar to Sloan uh, on the women's side, he's been out with injuries. He's on the comeback trail. We know what he can do, and he played very well and got himself into the final. Um, and we'll talk about the final here in a second. But I. I to be honest, I don't feel that Anderson was a letdown. No. I mean, look, the, the bottom in, in half of this draw was decimated. From the start of the tournament, the bottom half was by far... By the third the round was pretty much non-existent. Right. But there was, even from the very start, there was barely anybody. I mean, with the exception of Chilich and Zavera, uh, there wasn't anybody up the, at the bottom half, I thought. I mean, well, Corey, I guess. But, I mean, on the whole, when I looked at that draw, I thought it was either going to be Chilich or Zavera that made it to the final um, out of that, that bottom draw. And it, it, yeah, I mean, other than that, there weren't much, there wasn't much there. So yeah, anyway, it's, yeah. So let's, um, yeah, anyway, it was just kind of decimated. So uh, Nadal beat Del Potro, uh, tough first set. Del Potro won that, but he ran out of gas. Obviously the last two matches against him and Federer just, just knocked gas out of him. So uh, yeah, and I mean, even if he was over the flu at that point, I mean, physically the body had to be gone at that that point. Um, I mean, he came out firing in that first set. Nadal was a little slow starting, which he has been. Um, I think for Del Potro, he knew he had to come out and he had to absolutely go for it early. But the fact was, um, we saw he he used everything he had in the tank in that first set. Um, and to be honest, I kind of feel like in that match, Nadal knew that Del Potro didn't have that much left. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what you thought about it, but I, I think Nadal realized that he he didn't play his best and he barely lost the first set. I think he full well knew in his mind, let's just reset right now. This is still a fresh match. I, I'm good to go for many more sets. He's not. And, and I think that's the outlook that Nadal had going into that second set. Right. Well, I, I don't think that he felt like he was in for a war. I think he was like, okay, I lost this battle, but I'm going to win inevitably. Right. Well, he changed his strategy. He stopped going to the backhand a lot, and he started stretching Del Potro out to the forehand, and pushing him well, back Well, he was and moving, him, moving yeah. him and moving him and, and moving that him. Did and that so, did All right. The wheels were gone. So let's move into so. the final here. Uh, Anderson versus Nadal. You know, I, I got to admit, did I think that Nadal was going to win, Michael? Uh, yes, I did. But of course I've you also did. been watching. There was no, there was no doubt in your but mind. No, no, honestly, no. was there any doubt whatsoever? Yes, there was. Really? Okay. Here, here's why, and I just want to say this before we get into talking about the match. The reason why is because I've been around watching tennis long enough to know that nothing is ever a sure thing. It's like the way Nadal 
approaches the game. But 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 come on, I, this was okay. as close to a so, sure thing as so you were going to get. Three years ago, if you would have told me, and I know they're different players, and, and Stan is a much better player, but think about this for a second. Three years ago, in the in the Australian Open final, everybody, everybody picked Nadal to beat Stan. It was inconceivable that Stan was going to win. He just came off a huge, like, long, draining five-setter against Djokovic to get into the final. And Nadal, I think, beat Federer in four sets and was out on court far less and had, obviously, a lot more in the tank. And Stan went out there and won. So the reason I say that is that in Nadal, for all his career, and he's gotten better over the years, but for all of his career, big servers can give him fits. And if they're on point and they're cracking their serve and they're hitting their big forehand and they're pushing him left and right, they can cause him problems. Now, he was playing great coming into this into this uh, final, and I didn't discount that. But there's always just a little sliver that knows if, if a big, powerful server with a big forehand, even if he isn't a great mover, has a great day and a doll just isn't getting the serves back isn't you know is making errors it's it, it can be a different outcome and so okay I, I i understand that your logic there um but even stan then going into that final against kevin anderson now is a completely different story stan is a much better mover than anderson still can pump the serve just as good as anderson and has a much better forehand and backhand than kevin anderson does. yes he does the fact was Stan had a puncher's chance in that fight, and he won. Just absolutely slugging. Anderson, um, to be honest in this match, I don't see Anderson as a letdown in this match because Anderson came out with a good game plan. I saw it right out of the gate. He had a good game plan in his mind. The problem for Anderson was Nadal made a subtle adjustment early in that first set. And Anderson wasn't quick enough to change his game. He wasn't adjusting quick enough with Nadal. Nadal's adjustments was just too far ahead of Anderson. And it, it just kept Nadal out in front too much throughout the entire match. But I did see what Anderson was doing. And I credit him uh, for coming out with a very sound game plan in my what eyes. Was, what was his game because plan? Because if not for that... Well, his game plan... He, he did a really good job. He even went against the grain. Changed his serving patterns... Um, he, he was a little bit, he was aggressive, but not overly aggressive. Like you could see the game plan that he was trying to invoke. He was trying to do things that Nadal struggles against. He tried to do a good job of serving out wide, but mixing up the serves. He, especially on the, I believe it was the deuce side. He loves to go up the tee, but he fought himself and still went out wide anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, something that he, you know, that he doesn't do. Anderson is a very, um, Pattern server. He stays to the same pattern very often. He came out and forcefully forced himself to not do that, uh, which I respect because as a big server, that's changing your number one shot, right? Right. I gave him credit for that. And, and again, Nadal made some subtle adjustments early in that first set that I just – it kept him ahead of the curve. And there was just nothing Anderson could do after that. Uh, and I don't think that Anderson Anderson started to try to serve in volley as the match went on. The problem was if he would have done that early, he might have had a chance early. 
But the fact was, when he started coming in and serving and volleying at that point, Nadal was already well into the match, was confident with his swing, and it, it didn't matter then. Um, so, again, I, I give Anderson credit. He tried to come in with a good game plan, and he stuck with it for a very long time. Uh, he stuck with it through that first set, lost the first set, and then, then he started to try to make some changes and try some different things. But the problem was, at that point in time, it was too late. Uh, and Nadal had already made the other adjustments that he needed to make um, to get even further into Anderson's service games. And let's be honest, uh, Anderson played pretty well. I don't think that he played horrible. It's just, like like I said, Nadal made the adjustments early enough that it was too late. It didn't matter what Anderson did after a certain point. didn't matter what he changed or what tactics he tried. It, it was too late. Once Nadal was firmly into that set... Um, I, I honestly felt like Anderson didn't even have a puncher's chance, in my opinion. Well, after 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 he got ahead in that first set, it, it was pretty much over. Uh, Anderson just tried tactically; he changed his tactics too late, and Nadal had already been ahead of the curve at that point. Um, in, in what I saw. Okay. Well, Anderson, including his serve, he had ten aces for the match. Um, which isn't bad. Not but, bad, but but not not good for a server of his caliber. Right. But again, he is playing Nadal in a final. Right. So he had thirty-two winners. He had forty unforced errors. Nadal, meanwhile, had thirty winners and only eleven unforced errors. And in fact, in the latter stages of that third set, I think Nadal only had at one point six or seven unforced errors. Which is right. pretty impressive considering the power that Anderson has, but has both on his serve and on his forehand, especially. Um, Nadal, I think. Well, Nadal, Nadal tactically cut Anderson off. Yeah. As the match went on, and that's why I said Nadal, Nadal tactically changed what he was doing in that match ahead of Anderson. And, and it basically, the opening that Anderson had and the chance that he had, Nadal closed off very quickly. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think Anderson Anderson had to overhit everything at that point to even have a slight chance. And Anderson's game is, although his game to win is to be aggressive, that's not he, – he couldn't do that against Nadal because you're going to overhit more and more and more as the match goes on and thus 40 errors. But – do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. And how I'm explaining. Um, but I, I think mean, Anderson... It, it was a tactical change that, that I thought Nadal made that cut off Anderson and didn't give him the opportunity to try and really claw his way into the match. Well, Anderson um, should have the, the changed things in my mind from the start. If Anderson... That's what yeah. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. He realized that's what he needed to do, but by that point, it was too but late. But he should have, like, in my eyes. one. If he would have served... Like, I know that, I know that Anderson isn't a net player... I know he doesn't like coming to the net, but if he would have just served him volley to put the pressure on Nadal to hit passing shots constantly. But that's what I'm saying, Mike. He That isn't his game. So why would he come into this thing and say, oh, I'm going to go and serve and volley and win this match? If you're not a servant volleyer, well, you're not going to you're, think that way. If you're willing way. to change up your patterns on your serve, going in a direction you're not particularly comfortable in um, – which you could argue, but he was effective. Yeah. But it was effective, yeah, a little bit. The, the change, but what this is what I'm saying. He came in with that game plan of of trying to go out of his comfort zone a little bit, serve a little differently, which is hurting his biggest serve. But he served effectively that way, at least early on. It kept him in points. It kept him in those early service games that Nadal had 
tons of opportunities in. Um, but the fact is, Nadal tactically made the shift and closed off that first set. And then by then, Anderson realized, oh, I need to be serving volleying. It was too late. Yes, could he have come out with the servant volley tactic right out of the gate? And could it have changed things a bit? Yes, uh, it could have. But that's what I'm saying. I, I'm going at it in the perspective of this is how it happened as I saw it. Well, Nadal, you know what Nadal I mean? served well. He served great. Uh, he did. Fact, he did. He served very well. He played perfectly at the net. Didn't win a, lose a point at net. He lost seven, uh, he lost seven points on first serve, eight points on second serve for the entire match. Uh, so basically, like we said, like, it was pretty much, a, uh, I hate to say it, a bit a beat down really for the most part. Um, it was. Anderson kept it respectable for being his first final. Like he wasn't getting absolutely destroyed, but but in a way, the scoreline was a little misleading of that. Nadal, Nadal, after about f- what maybe four or five service games into the match, it was over. Yeah, like I said, I felt tactically Nadal had made the shift at that point, and Anderson had no chance after that. Yeah, and once Nadal got that first break, he, he, it was Nadal over. was in every single service game. Um, and to be honest, I think down the stretch, I don't think the doll actually went after it as much in Anderson's service games. To be honest, I, I think he actually pulled back a little. Uh, I mean, Anderson relaxed a little more and just kind of started going for stuff. And I, I didn't feel like he was as, I think he was relegated in his mind to know he was going to lose. So he kind of just relaxed a little bit at that point, which kind of, I think, kept him, made it look like he was in those sets a little more than he was the second and third. But, um, this match was won in the first like three service games, I would say for for Anderson. I think you would agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, okay, but regardless, credit to Nadal. He he played an amazing final. He went out against a big server and didn't struggle, which which is impressive and something that hopefully maybe he can build upon. So, um, what's this mean for Rafa? What's this mean for Rafa? And what does it mean for Anderson moving forward? Um. For Anderson, I don't think it's going to be a huge thing. Uh, let's be honest. He got through a racked bottom half of the draw. Played, he played some good matches to get to the final, but to be honest, in a full field, this isn't going to happen again. Um, with the field being a full field like it normally is. Um, uh, so for Anderson, good effort, but I, I don't really see it being a huge impact with him going forward. I'm sure that for him, this was a big deal, which of course it is. Um, but I don't think that's going to necessarily spur him forward to go, you know, on any huge runs anymore. Um, for Nadal, um, it's a confidence thing. Um, he himself has to realize that the draw opened up quite a bit for him. And I'm sure in his mind, I think that he would have rather won the title had he gone through a few more of the top guys to do it. I think in his mind that would have, you know, made it a bigger win for him than it is. But the fact is, he won a second title. He's pretty much a lock for year-end number one at this point now. Um, for him, it's a confidence thing. Uh, I think for him, he's just got to look at his, the positives of starting to work his way even towards he, he could possibly clean up the rest of the season. We don't, obviously don't know where Roger is. We don't know physically where he's going to be at. Nadal could literally sweep the rest of the year. It's possible. It is theoretically possible. We'll for him... I think he just um, stays the course at this point. Uh, obviously, winning the title is a big thing for him. Getting another hardcore title, which he has struggled on the surface at times, so I, th- I know that this has got to be a big thing for him. Um, I think stay the course, 
Keep yourself healthy, though. That's the big, big thing. Big, yeah, big thing is health. Uh, keep yourself healthy. Make sure that you are fresh and you're okay going into the next season. Um, and gear up for another big year. Uh, I think that it's possible as long as he stays healthy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I can't really add much there. All right. So anything – Eric's thoughts. I think Eric had thoughts on the match, right? Uh, Eric's thoughts that he had. Um, obviously, big thing that Delpo's back. Really excited about that, he said. Nadal winning his third title at the U.S. Open and his 16th overall is a big deal, especially on a hard court. Um, a little thing that he added, over 30s, uh, dominating the field. A lot of guys that are older playing really well in the field. Uh, father time who was his quote. Um, so that was, that was great. Um, and, and in general for him, um, Nadal did what he needed to do. Plain and simple. Uh, I'll be honest. The way that that draw opened up, if he didn't win the title, I think that he should have been super disappointed in himself. Oh, yeah. I mean, horribly disappointed in himself. So he, he stayed the course. He did what he needed to do. Um, but I mean that that was the primaries um, with with your brother's thoughts on that too. Um, he was disappointed that the younger generation didn't make an impact on the tournament on the men's side because they should have. Like what we talked about earlier, um, he was disappointed how Murray pulled out at the very last moment and that it really kind of threw the draw into a weird tailspin, which could have attributed to the way that the bottom half fell apart. Um, and obviously he felt very lackluster uh, in the semifinals, being that. Federer and Nadal didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, plain we were simple. all waiting for Although, it. Although, good showing from Del Potro, as he said. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, now it turns out Murray, it sounds like he's done for the year, uh, which kind of makes that whole thing even more questionable. Because if, if, it's, if his hip is at the state that he actually could be out for the year, that's kind of even worse. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... Uh, Michael, give me your biggest surprise on the men's uh, and the women's side for the tournament. Um, biggest surprise I'm actually going to go overall on the men's side is the bottom half falling apart. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen. Uh, there was a lot of guys in that bottom section that should have made it to the end that didn't. Um, and again, credit to Kevin Anderson for getting through that mess. Uh, and making it to the final and, and, and seizing an opportunity that he probably won't ever see again. Um, on the women's side, um, Sloane Stevens. Um, you and I have been very critical of her for a very long time. Um, biggest surprise of her coming out and showing what she can do when she has her mindset to it. Again, we talked about the time off. I think that that's a big deal. I think that her being having that time off is going to allow her – uh, her mindset to be right coming here into the U.S. Open. We saw her play well right into the lead-up. Um, but let's be honest, although it's a big surprise that she actually did it, it's not a surprise that she can do it. Um, but, you know, in a, in a second step to that, the, the final, um, I, I was super disappointed that Keys had such a bad showing. But again, th- there was a lot of factors there, um, Sloan being one of them, to be honest. Um so, I mean, th- those are my surprises as far as men's and women's. Okay. My biggest surprise on the men's side is uh, Denis Shapovalov, actually. Uh, he ah, I'm all right he with burst that. into – I mean, he made some noise at Montreal. But he came into this tournament. He had to qualify. He beat Zonga. He was making noise. 
the crowd was roaring. I got to say, uh, I didn't think much of the guy before Montreal. Um, I got to say, now I'm thinking this guy could be a real deal kind of a player. So good for him. One of the few guys I felt like next gen players who actually made an impact of any kind at this tournament. Uh, yeah. On the WTA side, um, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to go with a two. One is Stevens, and I pretty much agree with everything you said there because I, I coming into the tournament, I didn't really know that she was going to do much from the outset, um, but I'm glad to see that she's actually doing something and trying in her career, and it's led to a U.S. Open title, so good for her. Uh, the other one is Kvitova. Um, she took out Muguruza. Muguruza seemed like the odds-on favorite to win at the outset of the tournament. And that's why I picked her to get through on our recap last yep. week. And, and I really thought that it was going to continue, and, but it didn't. Right, and she almost took down Venus. Uh, barely, Venus barely got through that. Uh, so great for Kvitova. Obviously, we can see that she's improving steadily. Um, I can't wait to see her the rest through the rest of the year and definitely going into next year. Uh, Michael, your biggest disappointments on the WTA and men's side. I, I'm going to kind of cheat a little bit too. Okay. Um, Madison, obviously, in the final was a huge disappointment uh, just because I thought that this was going to be a monumental match. Um, but again, I, I kind of I, I feel bad saying that because of the fact that we don't know if she was truly really hampered with that leg. Um, but ill regardless, um, that was a letdown for me. Being that she got to the final, I was excited about that. But that was definitely a disappointment. The other disappointment to me, honestly, um, and again, this was the Madison factor coming to effect, though, was Svitolina. She played amazing all summer. Looked like she was going to be a massive threat here. And... She kind of fell apart late against Madison in that match that they had, and, and Keys just rode right through it. Um, again, she was really overpowered in that match, and I understand, but that's that's her game. Her game is being able to go out against those bigger hitters, and she does a good job of absorbing that power and deflecting it and using it against her opponents, and it just wasn't there. Um, to me, honestly, I thought she was going to make a deeper run than this. So I was kind of disappointed about that, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I, honestly, there wasn't a huge disappointment other than the final. I just, I wanted to see so much more out of Keys. I really thought she was going to win it. Um, but again, you know, outside factors kind of thing. Um, on the men's side, um, again, I'm going to go twofold. Um, we didn't get to see Roger and Nadal. Honestly, uh, as a fan now, in my mind, I'm not going to ask for it anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, the reason being, uh, anytime the, the media starts jumping all over it and we start jumping all over it, boom, it doesn't happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we got plenty of looks at it this year, more than we had ever thought we would get to see this year. Um, I think let's just sit back and if we get it, we get it. Um, so it's kind of a disappointment, but not necessarily, um, the other disappointments, uh, for me on the, on the men's side, that, that bottom half missed opportunity, Sam query, of course, when, when you and I saw that Sam got and, and Eric too, when we all saw him get to the stage he was at, 
we were like, this is it. We're going to get an American guy to the final. Him and John were playing amazing. It was supposed to be him and Isner playing each other. Isner absolutely played horrible against Anderson. Excuse me, Anderson. Didn't happen. We thought that those two would play each other, and then one of them would ride their way to the final to probably play in the doll, but we weren't sure at that point. Um, Sam Query is my biggest disappointment for the entire tournament. Although I am severely disappointed in Dimitrov, who didn't show up, which was disgusting to see, because I had him picked as a deep run here from the beginning of the tournament. Completely didn't even show up to New York. I don't even know where his head was. It was awful. But my biggest disappointment is Sam Query being that he got to the stage he got to and just just played an okay match against Kevin Anderson and let Anderson take it from him. Um, I mean, that's that's the best way for me to put it. Okay. Uh, my biggest disappointment, uh, uh, Dito on Dimitrov. And uh, I, I, for a guy who just won Cincinnati, who seemed to be coming in with a head of steam, who finally appeared like he was ready to make a run, who was poised, by the way, to be able to make a run, didn't do anything. And it's annoying. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's quickly becoming, I think, part of the lost generation. Um, the generation of players between Nadal um, and Fetter's generation and, you know, the Murray, Nadal, Djokovic, all that that generation of players um, and the ones that are like 2021, 20, uh, like Zverev and, and Kyrgios and stuff. So this, all those players like uh, Dimitrov and Nishikori, all those guys are in their, hitting their mid to late 20s. We could be looking at a generation of players that don't do anything, Michael. Anything, nothing. We've talked about this for a while. And, to be and, honest, yeah. right now, I think that the young guns have a chance to completely wipe that field out. Yep, yep. Uh, and my other is Zverev, Alexander Zverev. Um, he was. Yeah, again, I mean, I didn't put him in there, but I, I figured he you was would. supposed to do something here. And I'm not saying he was going to win the title. I'm not even saying he was going to make the final. But I wanted to see a deep run, minimum quarters, semis would be fine. Uh, anything past quarters, quarters or better, uh, would have been an, a good showing for me, and, and he wouldn't have been a disappointment at that point. Uh, for a guy that just won two titles come, going into Cincinnati, he lost early, fine, tired, whatever. But then he comes in and he just nothing against Korich. Korich is a good, solid player, but with the power and everything he's got, Zverev should have knocked out Korich pretty easily, and instead he got destroyed. So that's my biggest disappointment there. The WTA, um, man, I'm going to go with the USTA. That's my biggest disappointment. How's that? Ooh. All right. For, for the Maria Sharapova debacle. That's what I'm, that's Ooh. what I'm doing. We didn't bring that up, but I, I completely agree with you. You don't. We, well, we did bring it up in the last tournament, but you don't I agree. I agree. That was a huge It's a, it's a huge gaffe. Um, completely agree. You do not take, look. I understand. She came off suspension. Yes, she did her time. I understand that. But at the same time, because you want to make money, me, we, the USTA, if I, I'm the USTA, I, the USTA, am going to put Maria Sharapova, who has been out for 15 months because of drug suspension, I'm going to now put her on center court, well, uh, well center court, Arthur Ashe Stadium, night matches. Meanwhile, Wozniacki and other deserving players um, have to play on outside courts. 
because late into late the, into night, the night, because with Sharap- no uh, no knowledge of when they're going to because play. Sharapova gets the preferential treatment, despite the fact that other than being a big star and a big name and, and all that, and I understand that and a big draw and, and all that, I get that. But at the same time, what are you saying about that? You're saying we're going to reward you, we're going to give you the red carpet treatment every single night here for your matches, right? Because you know you'll fill the, you'll fill the stadium. So it's about money, money. Mm-hmm. Not about treating the other players who, by the way, weren't uh, drug suspensions, uh, fought hard all year, in and out of tournaments, you know, all that stuff. Playing the, the tour like they're supposed to and their reward for all of that is to get second fiddle to Maria Sharapova. I'm not, it's not against, against her. I'm not saying she didn't deserve, for instance, the Hallett match. I understood that one. But after that, she shouldn't have been getting every single match on Arthur Ashe Stadium. Sorry. Uh, there are other tour players that deserved it more than she did. In the very least, just as much. I would say a lot more. She deserved to actually play on some outside courts. Uh, it didn't happen. And for the USTA, I'm disappointed in you because that is ridiculous. Perfect. All right. I completely Michael, agree with you there. Absolutely. Final thoughts. Uh, well, first off, I'll bring up Eric's real oh, quick. Oh, yeah, you go ahead. Um, yeah. He said, as a tennis fan in general, the U.S. Open was better than I expected with Serena and five of the top ten men's players missing from the draw. Justifiable. Uh, while things would have been very different had Murray dropped out of the tournament, not dropped out of the tournament late like he did, we possibly could have seen Fed Nadal final. Now, obviously, we know now that Federer uh, was not 100%, but the fact is it could have been a different story. Um, he said, obviously, I'm being a Nadal fan. I'm still happy with the result <laughs> at the end. He said, I still think Nadal could have really benefited had he played possibly Roger in the final and that it could have been an even bigger tournament for him to get over that hurdle this year. Um, he said, on the women's side, happy with it. No complaints. We saw a lot of women, uh, you know, come out of the work and make good runs, uh, as well as seeing all the American women uh, make their effort into the semifinals. Um, and extremely happy to see, which you and I pointed out, Martina Hingez winning both the doubles and mixed doubles, uh, this year, getting her to her 25th Grand Slam. Uh, and in his final thing, looking forward to the end of the season and the race to London, um, to see who can end up number one. He didn't put it in there, but I'm obviously going to say at this point, it's probably going to be Nadal. Uh, right now, Roger's pretty much, I think, in your eyes too, Roger's going to have to win everything the rest of the year to have a chance. And even then, I think it's slim to none. Um, so at this point, um, he's excited to, to get to the year end now at this point and see where we're at at the end of the year and, and, and how things have shaken down um, at the end of the year. For me, final thoughts. Um, uh, U.S. Open final thoughts, opportunity. Um, a lot of people, men's and women's, took opportunities that they had and ran with them. Um and I think that this is an eye-opener for a lot of players. Um, if you have opportunity, do not be complacent about it. Do everything possible to seize that opportunity. Because in some instances, like we've seen with players before, you may never get that opportunity again. So that's my number one thing, final thought. Seize the opportunity. We saw people do it here with Sloan Stevens, Kevin Anderson getting to the final, Madison Keys making the final. Um, there was opportunity behavior I had by a lot of people and there's a select few that were able to seize that opportunity. So for the most part, never pass up a huge opportunity. Always go for it. 110%. 
All right. Well, my final thoughts are that this was a, a wild and crazy slam. Maybe maybe one of the wildest, if not the wild and craziest I've ever seen. Uh, crazy on the men's side, crazy on the women's side. The men's side, obviously, with the, the, the draw in the bottom half, that was just completely nuts. But um, it was it was maybe the most unpredictable Grand Slam that I've ever seen. So uh, with that being said, uh, it's been a wonderful two weeks, though. Really enjoyed uh, all of it. Really happy to watch two weeks of tennis. Um, obviously, I'm a Nadal fan, so it was great to see him lift the trophy. But uh, in general, it was just great to see Grand Slam tennis because there's nothing like it. So, yeah, that's it. All right, everyone. I think that's going to be it for us this week. Uh I will be taking a week off after this um, and we'll come back in two weeks with um, more episodes. And of course we have some time now because there isn't a whole lot. There's some tournaments and we've got like things coming up between now and like, say for instance, I think Shang- is it Mike was it Paris or Shanghai first. Do you remember? I want to be- I think it's Shanghai first, but I could be totally okay, wrong. Well, I, I honestly, it's either- but before yeah. the master series events start, it's going to be a little while. It's what a good, like what? Six and weeks? tennis fans, Tennis fans, two weeks away, the beginning of the Labor Cup. Oh, that's right. The Labor Cup. That'll, that'll probably be our next huge topic. Okay. Uh, so look out for okay. that. All right. So we have that coming up. And yeah, we got the Master Series series stuff towards the end of the year here. But we've got some time in between now and then. We're going to take a week off, come back. Um, and when we do, we have the Labor Cup to do. But we'll also have some time to do episodes that – other than giving you some news and, and things, uh, we'll probably be delving into some topics, you know, doing something a little different, you know, with the tour stuff we were always doing, you know, previews and mid-tournament, uh, uh, you know, recaps and then, you know, recaps of the, the whole tournament at the end of the, the whether it's a slam or a master series or whatever. Uh, but we haven't had a, a lot of chances to really just present a topic and talk about it and not have to and tennis fans that is where we're looking to you yeah 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 we want you if you have any suggestions if you have anything you want to hear us talk about anything you want us to break down don't be afraid to write in about it you know so uh there's a lot of great suggestions out there i'm sure we've got some great ideas and we're going to be going through them and uh, coming up with some things to talk about but yeah feel free if you want us to talk about something send an email in it's the best way also i'm probably going to be starting up a twitter account here before too long so you'll also be able to contact us there and so in the next podcast i'll make a point to let you know what that twitter handle is uh all right that's it from us uh we'll see you guys here in two weeks so until then have a good one and we'll catch you next time take care